Well, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Hope you guys had a good one. I know Thanksgiving and holidays can be a mix of things, right? It's fun, but there's certainly some, some trying parts of holidays, so glad you all made it here this morning to, to worship the King. So, if you've missed the last couple weeks or just uh, been sleeping, and, and I don't judge, sometimes you need sleep, um, uh, we, our new mission statement is on the back wall. So t- just turn around, everyone together, we'll do it together, it'll be okay. So for the family as a family of Christ. And then we have some descriptors there. We want to help families love and live for Jesus, and we want to cultivate Christ-centered relationships with each other. So we don't want to just say that that's our mission statement. We actually want to live it out. So one way to do that, Stacy mentioned earlier, is to grab one of these devotionals. And if, as we think of for the family, we want to help you love and live for Jesus. This is a great way to do it. And I'll say this. You'll look at it and you go, man, Lifeway Kids. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little past that. Well, I'll have you know, I read through these, and yes, they are simple, but they are profound. And if we don't get the simple, profound message of Jesus coming to earth, then, then we don't get to graduate to, to the deeper stuff. So I would just say, if, if you're here like, ah, you know, the kids are grown, won't be as engaging... Okay, yeah, the activity, you're right. The activities are, are geared towards kids. But the devotionals, take advantage. Great opportunity just to connect, get our hearts ready for celebrating Jesus coming to earth. And, and by the way, we, we've entitled our Advent series Arrival, which will start next week, literally because sat down every year I do this. I'm like, man, what does Advent mean again? Um, I forget. So I looked it up, and it literally means Arrival. So we were brilliant this year and, and called our series uh, Arrival, Advent and Luke. So Arrival, Arrival in Luke, kind of redundant, but uh, you get the point. So that's what it means in case, in case you didn't know. All right, turning the page here, we are in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. We'll be going to the end of the chapter today. And kind of have a two-part series last week, the first part of chapter 7. Um, we're answering the, the question that Luke 7, some people at the end of Luke 7 ask, which is, who is this man? Okay, Jesus does some stuff we're going to see today, and they go, who, who is that guy? And Jesus reveals two answers pretty potently. He, he says through his actions, I am compassionate. And I am powerful. And we saw that last week. And so we're going to see that this week. We're going to walk through the text and see his compassion and his power once again. So Luke 7 verse 18. Using the CSB, the Christian Standard Version. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. All the things that Jesus was doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So, verses 18 and 19 here, we got John the Baptist, and he's in jail um, because he got in a little trouble with Herod. Um, But his disciples, his followers, tell him all of these things, it says. So, his, his followers come to him in jail and say, hey, John, Jesus is doing this. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. He's doing all of this miraculous stuff. This is what's going on. And so 
John, who was sent to prepare people for the coming Messiah, just heard about all these miraculous things Jesus did. Then he asks, are you the one? He sends him back to say, hey, are you actually the one? Why is John doing this? He just heard all of this miraculous stuff. Why would he be questioning this at this point? Well, theologian Leon Morris says it better than I could. It's on the screen. He said, John was just plain puzzled. He had prophesied that the coming one would do some striking works of judgment. I do have that on the screen, okay? I doubted for a second. Um, John isn't doubting. He's puzzling. There, there. Tied it in. John was just plain puzzled. He had prophesied that the coming one would do some striking works of judgment. We saw that in Luke 3, 16 to 17. That was his message, was he's going to come and bring justice. But Jesus was doing nothing of the sort. He was engrossed in works of mercy. Would somebody else do those works of judgment? John wanted to know. So it makes sense now that he would be a little confused. Like everyone else, he expected a Messiah that would bring justice, that would bring judgment. And he's wondering, are you, are you the guy? Are you the guy? Because he was expecting Rome to get taken over. Okay, let's, let's beat up the bullies here. Rome, who was in power at the time. And Jesus is over here doing acts of mercy. So you could see why this is incongruent with what he was even teaching earlier. So he's just confused. Um, but Jesus... Yes, he is actually both of these. And he's going to respond in that way, saying, hey, yeah, I, I am going to bring justice. I am going to be the warrior on the white horse with a sword, but that's my second coming. My first coming, which is right now, is marked by compassion. And if it, my first coming wasn't marked by compassion, everyone would be toast because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So praise God that that's how Jesus came first. So let's keep reading. Verse 20. When the men, the people John, the, the disciples of John, reached Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who's to come, or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. And he replied to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. So here, Jesus essentially says to John, yes, I am the promised Savior. But instead of saying it, he says, just consider the things that you've heard and the things that you've seen. Consider the things I've done. And he makes all sorts of references in this section to, to the Old Testament, to Isaiah 35, 61, and other passages. And he's saying, essentially, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to bring judgment. But did you forget that the scriptures also foretold that I would bring compassion, not just judgment? See, Jesus preached Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 uh, earlier in Luke. And he said, today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And it says this, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. It's like Jesus is saying here, hey John, yes, 
vengeance will come. The Old Testament says that. That's the last part of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. But first, mercy and compassion are going to come. I'm the guy who's going to bring both. I am the Messiah. So let's just stop for a minute, though. And I want us to appreciate the compassion of God in sending Jesus to bring rescue before the day that he brings justice. See, think about this. God had no obligation to send himself for us. In fact, he had every reason not to. Everybody in the Old Testament, you read it, everybody in there and everyone not even mentioned the Old Testament before Christ was full of sin. The Old Testament is just a cycle of people screwing up and repenting and screwing up and sometimes not even repenting. Even David, the man after God's own heart, commits adultery and murder. They spit in the face of God's kindness and his help. And Romans 5.8 tells us that God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Never let that incredible news grow stale or old in your heart and your mind. You see, Jesus, Jesus did not have to come and bring us his compassion and his mercy. He would have been completely justified because of our sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, to come and bring justice. We deserve judgment day first. And it's what John and others expected, yet we received his compassion first, so that on judgment day, as verse 23 says, we will be blessed if we aren't ashamed of him. Incredible news. Let's keep reading. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A a reed swaying in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Wow. Now we have Jesus addressing the crowd, and he clarifies the significance of John the Baptist. And in so doing, is actually declaring the the power and significance of himself. And he starts by reasoning with them. He says, what drew y'all to this guy out in the wilderness? John, what drew you to him? Was it the fact that he was super ordinary? And Jesus is like, no. He wasn't this ordinary reed swaying in the wind out in the desert. That's ordinary. You see that all the time. He was not ordinary. John the Baptist, you do some homework on him. Guy was, people regarded him as nuts. Okay, he ate locusts, honey, a little crazy, okay? You didn't go out there to see something ordinary. Then Jesus is like, were you drawn to him? Because he was a man of means with this majestic clothing. And Jesus is like, no, that wasn't John at all, okay? He wasn't well-dressed at all. He's like, you were drawn to him because of his message. And his message was clearly from God. He was a prophet. And then Jesus goes, yeah, You're right, he was a prophet, that's why you went to him, but he wasn't just a prophet. He was the prophet. And then he quotes Malachi 3, 1 in verse 27. And I want to read the whole verse 
of Malachi 3.1 to help us understand this. It says, see, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. Then the Lord you seek, Jesus. That's who he's talking about here. The Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant you delight in. See, he is coming. See, John was the messenger preparing the way for the Lord, as it says in this verse, Jesus. And then Jesus calls John the greatest human being up to this point in verse 28. Who said that Jesus didn't have favorites, right? Here, he's saying, John is, it says, of those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the point isn't actually for Jesus to show us how great John is, it was actually just to show us how great he he is. So let me give you an example. So um, pretend you order some pizza from Casey's today to have delivered to your house. I've only done that once in my life, admittedly, because, well, it's only a few blocks away, so it always seems kind of silly. But uh, I have done it before, so imagine you do that. And I learned this week, fun trivia for you, Thanksgiving Eve, the day before Thanksgiving, is, is one of the, the largest pizza-selling days of the year in America. So there you go. There's, there's your trivia in case you ever find yourself on uh, who wants to be a millionaire. But um, imagine you're ordering some pizza from Casey's today. And when the guy shows up, the delivery man shows up with your pizza, to me, that is the, most, the, the greatest person on the earth. Okay? I don't know about you. To me... And he's the greatest person in the world at that moment. Why? It has nothing to do with him or her. It has everything to do with that Casey's taco pizza in their hands that they have for me, okay? John's the greatest because Jesus is that much greater. John was the delivery man of the best thing. See, what made John great was the person that he set the table for, Jesus. John's greatness amplifies Jesus' greatness. That's Jesus' point here. Then at the end of verse 28, we have another striking line. And it shows the power and compassion of God. It says, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The power of God. See, the kingdom that Jesus was bringing here makes the weakest stronger than the current strongest, John the Baptist. And it's not because people who trust in and follow Christ are are these these spectacular people. No, it's solely because of Jesus' power to make them spectacular and strong. In, In case you missed it, if you trust in and follow Jesus, here's what Jesus is saying. You instantly become greater than John the Baptist and everyone else before that. Why? Because Jesus' power made you God's child. Isn't that incredible? We also see his compassion in this line here. We go from rags to riches instantly, all because of Christ. So imagine 
that you went from your current financial status, and I'm convinced that this would not matter what your financial status is right now, okay? Whatever you got going on right now, whatever your net worth is right now financially, if you went from that to instantly receiving 50% of Jeff Bezos, the CEO or former CEO of Amazon.com, if you got 50% of his net worth just instantly, your life would be drastically changed. Okay, here's, here's how much it would be changed. Here's half of Jeff Bezos' worth. You would receive $3.1 billion per month, $102.5 million per day, $4.3 million per hour, and in the time it, it took for me to do this illustration, about a minute, you would have received $71,333. Here's the catch. When you become a son or a daughter of God, your net worth, not in dollars, but in what matters most in eternity, your net worth didn't go up by 50% of Jeff Bezos' wealth. It didn't go up by 100%. It went up by a million percent plus some. Your worth became infinite simply because of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Look at this. First Peter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And here's your worth. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's your worth now. Simply because you trusted in Christ. You are 100% sure that you have a hope, a living hope, it says here, of an undestructible, perfect, never gets old or boring inheritance for all time in heaven. But uh, even more than that, this reality is yours now, today as you sit here. Hope, joy, peace that can't be explained and cannot be stolen is found in relationship with Jesus. This is the compassion of Jesus, won by his power, rags to riches. This is what it means to be a child of God. Let's jump down now to verse 36. We'll come back to 29 to 35 later. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet and her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, another 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more. And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. 
You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a beautiful story. Now Jesus here is eating with a Pharisee named Simon. He's eating at his house. And most likely Simon didn't have great intentions here. He was probably trying to, trying to catch Jesus in the act of doing something um, unclean or unlawful so he could get Jesus in trouble. And this woman comes in. And it says she was a sinner. And almost assuredly she was a prostitute. And she enters the scene. Now it seems that she intended to anoint Jesus' head with this perfume, which was customary to do of revered teachers. But something about the way Jesus acted at this simple meal moved her to tears. Moved her to brokenness. And she ends up washing his feet with her tears. And then not even be able to stand up, but uses the perfume on his feet. Now, more on this woman and her response later. But, but now, I just want you to notice that even this ordinary act of Jesus having a meal revealed his power and compassion. Notice that Jesus has not done a thing yet when this woman starts doing this. Jesus simply came into his house, sat down, and was eating. I've eaten with a lot of people, and I can't say that I've ever sat down with a group of people and just from being in the presence of this person that I barely know the name of, I was moved to tears. Never happened to me. This is how powerful and compassionate and moving Jesus is. Don't, Don't lose the wonder and awe here of how this ordinary act, just having a meal with him, moves people. Verse 39, though, we catch the Pharisee talking poorly of Jesus smugly to himself because of this gal. He's thinking this to himself. He's saying this to himself, not out loud for Jesus or anyone else to hear. Yet, Jesus reads his mind and responds to his thoughts. This is the power of God. It seems like every week we're seeing Jesus read someone's mind. So let me help bring this to life. Let's say you're, you're having Thanksgiving meal. And if you're having a good Thanksgiving meal, in my opinion, you're having mashed potatoes, okay? And you're eating mashed potatoes and you're, you're, you're eating away and you're like, you're thinking this to yourself. You're saying to yourself, man, you know, Ma's mashed potatoes just aren't as good this year. I wonder what happened, you know? And they've been declining over several years, actually. You're eating this. You're thinking this, right? And then mom, out of nowhere, in front of everyone, goes, Matt, you can just make the mashed potatoes next year, all right? I think I'd spit them out and probably faint if that happened. 
Okay? This is the type of thing happening here. This guy is thinking this. Wow. Why is he, why is he letting this sinner do this, you know? And Jesus responds to that. And he responds with a quick parable to help Simon better understand Jesus and his compassion. Verses 41 to 43 here, we see this parable. And, and the Pharisee agrees with Jesus that whoever has been forgiven a lot would be that much more grateful and, and, and honoring of the person who, who forgave them. And then Jesus applies this to this woman wiping his feet. She's been incredibly honoring and grateful from the moment she came in. Why? Because she, she's been forgiven of a lot. Jesus compares this Pharisee Simon with this woman. And in comparison, he shows how little this man has honored him. He had him in his home, sure. This, this guy honored Jesus in that. Had him in his home, gave him a meal. But I think Jesus even knew, I know Jesus knew, that his motives were a little off here. Maybe a lot off. And Jesus flips the common Jewish view on sin and forgiveness on its head here. See, Simon thought he was worthy of the little forgiveness that he needed, if he needed any at all. But Simon also thought that this woman was not worthy of the massive amount of forgiveness that she needed. And Jesus levels the playing field here and says essentially, you both desperately need forgiveness. And if anything, she's got one up on you, Simon, because she actually realizes her neediness. Let me bring this to life, okay? The needier the sinner, the sweeter the Savior is to them. You see, if, if Pastor Matt and a drunk stumbling out of a bar today, if both of us genuinely fall on our knees and repent of our sin to Jesus, both of us will be forgiven and loved the same. And if anything, the drunk will appreciate it more than I will. See, the needier the sinner, the sweeter the Savior will be to them. Let's look at these people's responses in the text. Three different responses here. The first response to Jesus and his compassion and power is rejection. So let's go back to verses 30 to 35. Rejection. But since the Pharisees and experts in the law had not been baptized by him, John, they rejected, rejected the plan of God for themselves. To what then, Jesus is talking, to what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet... Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Rejection. Jesus compares this rejection of the Pharisees to two groups of kids playing. And it's kind of hard to understand right away, so let me make some sense of this. Group one of these children playing, the first group of kids is the good kids, so to speak. 
It's John and it's Jesus. And the second group are the bad kids. These are the rejectors of John and of Jesus. And the good kid John sang a lament, so to speak. He called for repentance of sin. But the bad kids, when they heard this, they went, no, John, he's, he's not a prophet. He's possessed by a demon, okay? Don't pay attention to him. Don't repent of your sins to this guy. Why did they do this? Pharisees did this because they didn't want to own up to their own sin in their own lives. Second part of the analogy, the, the, the other good kid, Jesus is, is playing the flute, so to speak. He healed and, and people of, of their diseases and he preached the good news and cast out demons. But the bad kids are going, no, he's not the Messiah. He's, he's self-indulgent. He's, he's unclean. He hangs out with sinners. Why did they do that? They did this because they loved their power and their position too much as Jewish leaders. And it because, because it meant that they no longer were their own God. They were their God. When we reject Jesus or simply ignore Jesus and his power and compassion in our lives, we are also choosing these same two things that the bad kids did. We ignore our sin. We refuse to confess, repent, and deal with sin in our lives. We gloss over it. I'm not as bad as her. I'm not as bad as him. We ignore our sin, and we also make ourselves God when we reject Jesus. We make ourselves God. This, this feels good right here, right now, so I'm just going to do it. This makes me look more important, so I'm all in. Rejecting Christ is certainly what unbelievers do. And if this is you, if you haven't trusted in Christ, consider Jesus' compassion and power here and believe. I beg you. But if you are a believer, myself included, we are tempted with this every day. We are tempted We are tempted to ignore our sin. There's not a day that goes by, in fact, that we're not tempted to ignore our sin. A little cutting remark at our spouse, NBD. A white lie about numbers at work, no biggie. A quick fantasy about someone else's spouse, it's all good. A little blow up at our kids for interrupting our precious game on our phone, eh, Not that big a deal. There's also not a day that goes by when you and I are not tempted to make ourselves God. One of our kids needs help with their cereal or with their homework, but I'm too busy watching this YouTube clip. Blow off a date with my spouse to stay later at work so that I can get ahead. You say, I I would pray, but I have to work out or I need to watch my show. Listen. Listen well. Every single time that you ignore sin in your life, you are making yourself God. And you are rejecting Jesus and rolling your eyes at his compassion and his power. But rejection is not the only response we see in this passage. We also see acknowledgement of Jesus. Look at verses 29 and verse 49. 
Verse 29 says, when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. Acknowledged God's way. Verse 49, those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? Neither of these people are all out embracing Christ. But they're at least acknowledging him. Both verses, there's a definite acknowledgement of Jesus. But mere acknowledgement is pointless if it doesn't lead to action. For example, um, many of you know I like to ride bicycle. And uh, I went on a couple long bike rides uh, recently. And I can remember distinctly one of them. Uh, I barely acknowledged Jesus was there, just to be frank with you. I, I maybe said a quick prayer beforehand, God keep me safe, but I listened to a bunch of sports podcasts, some, some good driving hard music to keep me going, right? And then I ate some barbecue and, and, and that was it. And guess what? At the end of that day, I was not refreshed and I was rather anxious in my thoughts. My thoughts were running wild. Another bike ride I went on, I actively worshipped Jesus and was prayerful throughout it. Now, sure, I still listen to some sports podcasts, but I also listen to a sermon podcast. I listen to some worship music. I still ate some barbecue, but I was journaling, pouring out my heart to God while I was doing that. Guess what? I was refreshed and filled with the peace of Christ. The difference is subtle, but it's profoundly insightful. When you live like Jesus didn't just exist and you just acknowledge him, it's okay. But when you live like Jesus is all that matters and you worship him, that's where it's at. And that leads to the third response, worship. Verse 36 and by the way, this last section that we're going to look at and her response, it's, it's like the dessert at Thanksgiving. This is the best part, so don't tune out on me now, okay? Verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him, he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping began to wash his feet with her tears and she wiped his feet with her hair kissing them and anointing them with their perfume a lot could be said about this but I want to note three things about her worship here of Jesus her worship was extravagant verse 37 he brings an alabaster jar of perfume oil was customary but instead of using the cheaper customary oil, she brings the more expensive perfume. She brought her best for Jesus. She didn't settle for second-rate worship. As I noted last week, worship is just going, wow, you're amazing, Jesus. Worship is not merely songs we sing here on Sunday morning, although it is that. It's responding to Jesus with awe and wonder in any circumstance. So let me give you some practicals. How can you worship Jesus like this gal more extravagantly? How can you do it 
at church. Bring your best by getting plenty of sleep Saturday night. I guarantee you prioritize sleep for lesser reasons all the time. See, Jesus is worthy of our best waking hours, fully alert, isn't he? How can we worship him more extravagantly in our everyday life? Let me suggest that you give the most alert time that you have to God in prayer and reading the word of God. Not your leftovers, not when you're dead tired and have nothing left but when you are the most alert. And that's a little different for all of us. Her worship was extravagant. Secondly, her worship was broken. Verse 38, she was weeping. She's broken and weeping. And I think for two different reasons. One, these are tears of remorse for her sin. But secondly, they're tears of joy. Joy that Jesus was here and actually accepted her when everyone else rejected her. How can we be more broken in our worship at church? Let me suggest that at some point during every service, you just take a look over here at this cross. And as you do that, picture him dying on that cross for your sin. Picture a real human man, Jesus, dying there for your sin. And then thank him for that forgiveness some point in your worship here. Do that every Sunday. How could we have more broken worship in everyday life? Simply confess your sin to God every day. Take some time. It's, it's easy to ask Him for things. Take some time to actually say, Lord, I screwed up here and here and here. But don't end there either. Then thank Him for the forgiveness that you have for that sin because of what He did on the cross. Thirdly, this gal's worship was unashamed. It was extravagant, it was broken, but it was unashamed. Verse 38, she wiped his feet with her hair. It was frowned upon in this culture to let your hair down at all for a woman in public. And here she is, not just letting her hair down. She was wiping someone's feet with her hair. Despicable in this culture. But she doesn't care what other people think. Because she's worshiping Jesus. How could our worship be more unashamed at church? Let me suggest that from time to time, you raise your hands when you're really amazed at what Jesus is doing while we're singing worship music. Quit letting the person, what the person next to you thinks, dictate your worship. Let Jesus dictate your worship. How could your worship be more unashamed in everyday life? I would suggest praying out loud with your family, with your friends, with your coworkers at spontaneous times, not just at meals, not just at bedtime. Be unashamed in praying for people out loud in your home, at work, wherever you're at. So let's end where we began last week. Verse 49 says, who is this man who even forgives sins? Here's what we saw. Jesus is this man. Let Jesus' compassion and his power move you. 
away from rejecting and ignoring him. Let his compassion and power move you away from mere acknowledgement of him. Let Jesus' compassion and power move you to extravagant, broken, and unashamed worship of him because he is worthy of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We praise you. You are worthy of all of our worship. God, I I pray that you would make us more like this woman who from the outside all people could think of as she is a sinner. But God, help us to look to her example and be broken and be unashamed and extravagantly worship you, Jesus. Because you are worthy and you forgive us, Lord. We have much to be forgiven of. We, We share way more of the qualities of this woman than we do of this self-righteous Pharisee. So thank you, Lord, that you welcome us in. You don't, you're, you're, not, you're not ashamed of us. You're not sitting there going, oh man, why don't you just stand like 20 feet away while you talk to me because you smell? No, instead you're going, I, I love you so much. I want you near and I, you are near. I stand at the door and knock at your heart. Help us to open it this week and worship you and enjoy fellowship with you, God. I pray that right now, as we worship in song, just one expression of worship, we would just be unashamed, Lord. Make us like David, who didn't care what other people thought of him as he worshiped you. Make us that way, not just this morning, but this afternoon. And tomorrow. And help us to do that because we understand deeply at our core how great and compassionate you are, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.